We'll hear argument now, number 96, 1923, Edward S. Cohen versus Hilda de la Cruz. Mr. Ayer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 523A2 of the Bankruptcy Code creates an exception to discharge for individual bankruptcies applicable to, quote, debts for money, property, services, or extensions of credit to the extent obtained by fraud. The required fraud under that section includes not only representations that are consciously false, but also reckless false statements. And the issue in this case is whether this exception reaches beyond the amounts actually obtained by, it, by the debtor to accept from discharge a treble damage award ordered for reckless fraud, where the fraud involves intentional falsehoods and results in willful and malicious injury, the damages, uh, punitive and otherwise, are non-dischargeable under a different section, 523A6. And you agree with that reading? We do. Uh, so then you would have a lack of parallelism between the uh, section you're addressing here and subsections 4 and subsection 6. We would, Your Honor. And, and in fact, we think that, that that's quite clear from the language, that, that the structure of the, of the uh, 523 sections, as they work, given the literal reading of 523A2, uh, works quite well. 523A2 is a provision which, by its terms, is directed to the actual fruits of the fraud. It's a simple, clear directive that tells people if they commit fraud, what they get by the fraud will not be discharged. Would, would that include accounting if, if, if the defrauding party, the, the, the wrongdoer, uh, makes profits from the property that he steals. Are, are, are those profits recovered? I, I think they would not be, Your Honor. I, I think that, that the, the other provisions that deal that with... Obtained, that's property obtained by the fraud. Well, it, it, I, I think the most reasonable interpretation is to focus upon the amounts obtained by the act of the fraud, which I would think most immediately would be the amounts obtained in the fraud. What is, what is so very... Do you think it wouldn't even include attorney's fees and costs in the very action in which the... I, I think it would not, Your Honor. I, I, I think that the other provisions, the A6 provision in, in, in particular, which this Court will address tomorrow in the Geiger case, is a provision which is generally applicable, essentially, among other things, to all torts. And it sets a standard which says willful and uh, a debt for willful and malicious injury. That has been interpreted reasonably, we think, to include punitive damages, to include other penalty sums, to include consequential damages, to include contractually arranged for attorney's fees, uh, and, and is a, a reasonable and uniform way of dealing with what I'll call damages uh, and consequential uh, payments that are owed. Our, our uh, your, your answer to Justice O'Connor, it seems to me, follows easily from the answer you gave me. I think attorney's fees are even further removed right. under, under your interpretation. Correct, Your Honor. Uh, than uh, the profits that the uh, uh, court fees are gains. Correct. Now, what, one interesting result of our interpretation, and it, it actually is, is played out in some detail in a decision cited in the Solicitor General's brief, a Tenth Circuit case, in Ray Gerlach, uh, is that actually the amount awarded under A2, when you focus on the act of fraud uh, and what is obtained, may actually exceed, in some cases, the damages that are otherwise owing. And in that sense, it seems it is a very rational and sensible message to people who may commit fraud. Say that again. Well, in the context, specifically, the context in, in Gerlach was a context where uh, the operator of a, of, a, of, a, of a business selling heavy equipment, selling John Deere tractors, um, initially got an extension of credit from John Deere, uh, legitimately. But later on, they got an extension of that credit by submitting false invoices to show they were doing business that they weren't doing. The court in Gerlach said that uh, the, ex the later extensions of credit involved the obtaining uh, of money by fraud, uh, and as a result, the entire amount of the debt that was owed was, in fact, uh, covered by A2, even though there might in that case be no damages at all. 
Uh, so I, the only point I want to make is that our point is that in A2, you're dealing with what was obtained, the other sections uh, under the code, A6, but also others, also A4, uh, also A11. Uh, other, others deal with money uh, that is gained by fraud, and they, they, they set up a different logic. The logic is uh, what, 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 did you, what, what the debt is for, the injury, and the injury is interpreted broadly. And How does Gerlach work? In other words, the, the bankruptcy code supersedes state tort law on the measure of recovery for fraud? In the, in the John Deere case that you're describing. I, I think the net result is that, is that it, to whatever extent there is a debt, um, it would be non-dischargeable uh, under A2 if it is... Uh, to the extent there is a debt. Well, there has to be a debt, obviously. Uh, um, but it may, in fact, be a debt that is larger than the amount that is damages as a result of the fraud. I guess that's the point that I want to make. Um, Back briefly to the, to the facts of this case, which I think are important. Um, the respondents here are some of the tenants of an 18-unit apartment building uh, that was owned by the petitioner and his father between 1985 and 1989. When their apartment rental business failed in the late 80s as a result of falling real estate values, petitioner filed bankruptcy uh, under Chapter 7. Thereafter, the rent control administrator entered an order to the effect that uh, there had been an overcharge of these tenants, which amounted to $31,000. And the bankruptcy court held uh, that the overcharge was non-dischargeable under, under the A2 provision. The court found further that actual fraud existed in that case on the ground that the act of charging rents was itself an implicit representation of their legality. And second, that petitioner's recklessness in failing to determine what the correct rents were uh, was sufficient to establish an intent to deceive. And finally, the bankruptcy court held that because the overcharges amounted to fraud, treble damages were appropriate under the New Jersey uh, Consumer Fraud Statute, and then found that that amount indeed also was non-dischargeable. Our view is, as is apparent already, I guess, that uh, that, that result is wrong. It's wrong essentially for three reasons. One, the plain language of the statute, uh, which talks about uh, debts for money, property, uh, services, uh, extensions of credit, um, to the extent obtained by fraud, clearly doesn't include uh, the amounts that are punitive in nature. Well, I don't know that it's all that clear from the language. Uh, what does debt for mean? Does it mean liability on a claim for? It does, Your Honor. That's the, the way it is defined as liability on a claim for money, property, services, etc. Uh, Do you rely on the phrase to the extent? We do. We, we think that there's been a discussion back and forth in this case about whether to the extent modifies money, property, services, or whether it modifies debt. I think everyone agrees, and in this case at least, agrees that it modifies money, property, services. Uh, our difference, I think, is that is how we understand the word for. In, in the petitioner's view, a debt for a house or a debt for uh, any particular thing is a debt for what you have to pay for that thing. It's not a debt for the act of obtaining that thing. Well, now, you, you indicate that before the 1984 amendments to the statute, courts generally thought punitive damages uh, were non-dischargeable. Under A2? Mm -hmm. Your, Your Honor, what, what is very interesting about... Is that right? A, I mean, that no. was the general holding of the courts. I, I would say that... But at least that's what your brief says. That, that they were, were non-dischargeable. I, I, right. I think not, Your Honor. I think that the, the, that the language prior to 1984 was language that said debt for obtaining 
money, property, et cetera, by fraud. Now, we think that's ambiguous language. Uh, there are a couple of cases, literally only a couple, that held necessarily that that language does in fact reach punitive amounts. And we, we don't think that it is illogical to reach that result, but, but what is important is that prior to 1984 and prior to, to 1978, even more so, there, was, there were not occasions that came up that made courts decide this issue. The main reason is that with the presence of the A6 language that talks about debts for willful and malicious injury, with that language being there, any time conduct results in willful and malicious injury, it doesn't matter what A2 means or, or what is now A2 means. It doesn't matter what it means to have a debt for obtaining. And so courts, in deciding these cases, as we talk in some detail about in note, footnotes 13 and 14 of, the, of our reply brief, of the yellow brief, uh, the courts typically didn't focus specifically on the meaning of that prior language. They didn't have a reason to. And so it isn't possible to say here, as the court has said in a number of cases, there was an important pre-1978 or here pre-1984 bankruptcy practice that had been established. Indeed, there was no clear practice that had been established. It is not our mission here to tell you that the meaning of those words, if it, if it mattered what the pre-78 words meant and, and you, you didn't have A6 and you had to decide, might a court decide that they in fact meant to include punitive damages? Maybe they did. It isn't clear. I would only say that when, when, when reviewing, if you review uh, Justice Breyer for the court's opinion in the Ogilvy case, which talks about, under the different statute, under the, uh, the IRS statute, uh, whether damages um, on account of personal injury, whether those include punitive damages, and the court ruled that they did not, if that is an admissible result, it seems to me it's certainly admissible to conclude, one could conclude, that, uh, that a debt for obtaining money by fraud doesn't include it. Our only point is that it was ambiguous. It never got clearly resolved by the courts, but in a single case that we're aware of, a Ninth Circuit case called Houtman. Why, why isn't that function of, uh, of six uh, still applicable? I mean, I don't understand why six would make the question irrelevant then and not make it irrelevant now. It, it is still applicable, Your Honor, and, and I think that it is true that this case and this court's decision in this case is only going to be determinative in the group of cases, and I've debated whether to characterize it as the sliver of cases or a larger group of cases, but the group of cases that involves conduct that fall that is fraudulent, meaning it's at least reckless, uh, but it falls short of being willful and malicious. And Mr. Ayer, you would concede that your argument uh, leads to the result that is suggested in the Solicitor General's brief at page 21, that is, the bolts that were sold with fraudulent representation for $5,000, and, and yeah. then there's a crash of the plane? Justice Ginsburg, I, I know your question. I think it, it, it does lead to the result that that conduct, like other kinds of tortious conduct, will produce non-dischargeability of punitive damages only where the conduct is found willful and malicious. So that if it isn't willful and malicious, just reckless. Right. Then the result is $5,000 and not what it costs to rebuild the plane. That is correct. It is clear to you that willful and malicious does not include reckless? Punitive damages, I had always thought, were only given for intentional torts, and yet uh, they're given for, for recklessness. Uh, well, I assume they're given for recklessness because it, it, it amounts to willful and malicious, as it does in the criminal law. You know, well, that, I mean, that, firing the rifle into the empty house, you know, that, nobody's there at all, you really don't care. I mean, that, that I think is some part of the question pending in the Geiger case, 
which will be argued tomorrow. And it has been our understanding from reading the cases that we're aware of that uh, two things are clear under the law. One is that reckless misrepresentations do come within A2, that it is fraud under the restatement, and as this court incorporated, in essence, the restatement into that. Sure they do. And secondly... So, so, do, so do willful ones, though. Correct. Okay. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, I mean, our, our best reading of the cases is that willful and malicious uh, requires a, a measure of intentionality and, and knowing conduct vis-a-vis the harm that results. Now, we could be wrong about that. It's not an issue that has been raised in this case because thus far no one has suggested that the conduct here was willful and malicious, and I guess I would submit that that's highly unlikely given the fact that we're dealing with implicit representations based simply on the fact that he charged a certain rent and uh, recklessness in failing to ascertain what the, what the legal rent was. I would, I would think that would be hard to find willful and malicious, but I will not attempt to define, you know, the case, the outcome of the case tomorrow. I, I think you may have the, the better view uh, in a close question on, on the reading of A2, but I, I'm concerned about the lack of parallelism with 4 and 6, which is what we've, we've been addressing, uh, addressing here. Uh, yeah. if, if you prevail, there are going to be cases that might be classified under uh, this section or, or section, uh, the section on malicious conduct, and then we'd have to decide whether, whether it falls under this. The well, I mean, our, our understanding of the statute as it now reads is that there, there are several provisions that, that, that make non-dischargeable various damages. Uh, we would submit that the A2 provision is essentially not a damages. It doesn't deal with damages. It, it deals with the specific act of obtaining something by fraud, and it says no. You're going you're to be stuck with that if you got it by fraud. The other provisions, the A4 provision, relates to fraud by a fiduciary, among other things. Uh, the A11 provision is a special provision enacted with regard to fraud in the context of federally insured institutions. And A6, dealing with willful and malicious, as the court suggested in, uh, in footnote 2 of the Grogan decision, uh, that might be, the court said there, didn't, didn't try to decide the issue, but suggested that that might be a sensible place to focus the discussion of whether or not uh, fraudulent conduct is willful. So the lack of parallelism, I would submit, is the product of the fact that A2 is looking at something else. A2 is looking at the act, the obtaining, and saying, no, you can't keep that. And the rest of it creates, you know, frankly, I would say a uniform uh, and sensible system. If, if, the, if the line that's to be drawn as a matter of policy is that non-dischargeability comes when conduct gets bad enough that you can say it's willful and malicious, then why should fraudulent conduct be any different than other kinds of tortious conduct? Uh, why would you single that out? They've already singled out the act of obtaining by fraud. That's important. That's a, that's, that's a significant thing. Uh, but why should we reach in and say, why should the court reach in and say, well, we know it only really matters when you have reckless fraud, and we know that it's going to make non-dischargeable statutory treble damage awards, such as in this case where somebody acts by an implicit representation based on reckless failure to determine facts. Uh, that's really the situation of reckless fraud is the only one where this case, I, I think it's the only one where this case makes any difference. Because when you get beyond reckless fraud and you say willful and malicious, then you're dealing with it under A6. And Mr. I, Mr. Mr. Harris, uh, your, your question presented in this case is phrased in terms of, of punitive damages. And yet, as I read them, none of the statutory sections we're talking about refer to punitive damages. That's correct, Your Honor. We, we use that phrase, rightly or wrongly, uh, as a generic reference to include not only 
common law punitive awards and, and statutory treble damage awards. Is that, is that addressing your question? We don't mean by punitives to focus only on um, the amount of jury awards as a punitive damage award in the, in the conventional sense. Then what do you mean by it? Well, we, we mean to encompass awards that are um, in the nature of a penalty. The uh, court below specifically assumed, for purposes of this case without deciding, that the treble damage penalty, uh, tr treble damage award in this case, the trebling, was solely for punitive purposes. But now supposing in an action, an ordinary tort action for fraud, uh, ordinary damages or benefit of the bargain damages are recovered, uh, what, what would be your view? Well, I, our, our view would be that the, that the A2 provision should be read in accordance with its terms. And that would mean that the amount that the, uh, that the debtor got by fraud uh, would in fact go back. Uh, the benefit of the bargain damages may or may not equal that. Uh, you can conjure up all sorts of different factual... They might defenses. be greater. They might be greater. Uh, as I indicated before, they might conceivably be less. Um, and, and I guess the, the affirmative point vis-a-vis <laughs> A2 is that in doing what Congress said in this statute, they've created a, a very clear statement, we think, and a clear statement that is important as a, uh, essentially a, a wall against fraudulent conduct. It's a directive that says if you got it by fraud, you don't get to keep but it. But the, the issue turns on whether there's fraud, not whether there are punitive damages. Correct. Correct. And, and, and nor, nor on, indeed, whether there are damages, whether, whether there have been found to be specific damages. Mr. Ayer, it, it seems to me you somewhat understate the, the consequence of the, of the rule you're, you're urging on, as you say. It, it really only makes a difference when there's rec recklessness but not willfulness and, uh, and some kind of a punitive award. Uh, but it seems to me it also makes a difference when uh, there isn't recklessness. Uh, and the issue is whether you uh, only get back under A2 um, the money that the person, uh, or, or whether there is covered by A2 only the money that the person uh, received, or also there is covered whatever profits are made from that money, which often happens. Well, I, that's, and, that, that, and frankly, that's the part of your interpretation that troubles me more than the other one. Uh, well, that, that is, I mean, in, in all honesty, Your Honor, that, that is a possible extension of, the, uh, of, of our reading of it that, that I will say, in all honesty, had not occurred to me. But, but it's a possibility that, in other words, it is possible, perhaps, to say that you got this money by fraud and then you got profits by fraud. You got profits from that money and therefore... All of that was obtained by fraud, and I, I, I must say I think that's, that is an interpretation which I, I do think could be reasonable in the context. Which, and that's where the distinction would be between the profits, which under this interpretation would be recoverable, and attorney's fees and costs uh, incurred in recovering it, which is not recoverable. Right. I, mean, I, I, think that, I think that punitive damages, I think that consequential damages, I think that other damages which do not grow directly from what was obtained clearly are not encompassed within A2 and that you deal with those damage issues in the context of either A6 or one of the other special sort of egregious wrong provisions that are in... Okay, in but you think that any funds that are actually received by the defendant uh, could, could be regarded as obtained by the fraud? I, I think that's a reasonable reading, Your Honor. Is, is, uh, did I, am I right in thinking you've looked through the legislative history of the 1984 amendments, you've read the reports... You've looked at the floor statements, etc., and you couldn't find anything as to any reason why Congress made the linguistic change. There, there, is, there is a one-sentence reference that talks about the change being stylistic. All right. If there is no reason, then, 
and if the language permits, as uh, Justice O'Connor pointed out before, uh, uh, why shouldn't we read this exactly the same as it's always been read in the history, uh, i.e., liability on a claim? They're talking about a claim. In other words, they're talking about a judgment, i.e., they're talking about what is normally in a bankruptcy proceeding, a piece of paper. Uh, the bankruptcy judge sits there. He says, I have a piece of paper. It has a number on it. You go read the number. You ask the question, is this piece of paper in an action for fraud? It is or it isn't. If the answer is yes, you write in the number. If the answer is no, you don't. Now, now I take it if there's no intent whatsoever uh, to make a change, and we haven't found any, they said it was stylistic, then that's the simple way that bankruptcy proceedings used to work. And what's the reason for making it more complicated now? Okay. Um, in other words, we ignore the language unless there's legislative history to, to indicate that the language really means something. Thank you, thank you Your Honor. Um, I would go back to my question. Okay. If the language, as you read it, says liability on a claim, because debt is defined as liability on a claim, uh, then uh, we look to see whether the changes that were made in the language... Well, you've heard my question. Okay. The, the, the language said there's, there's several parts to the answer. The, the language says liability, if you put all the pieces together, the liability on a claim as relevant here for money to the extent obtained by fraud. That is not the same as saying liability for the act of obtaining money by fraud. That's our first point. Our second point is that... No, well, that, that's... that's uh, yeah, I, I understand. My, my question is, is there any reason for treating the interpretation of the present language differently from the interpretation of the prior language? Well, except for and, the fact... Uh, I, I, all right. I, I, now, now, the answer might be yes or it might be no. But I asked about the history because okay. they said it was yeah. just stylistic. Right. Yeah. I, I guess I would, make, I would make two points, one which I made before, and that is the prior language never needed to be, and in fact, I would submit, looking at our footnotes 13 and 14, never was definitively interpreted the way Your Honor has indicated. But the most important reason is that, and, and well, I won't say the most important, I think the most important reason is the words of the statute. Beyond the words of the statute and the structure uh, and the lack of a prior clear precedent, all of which we submit as dispositive, there is the very important fact that uh, this whole set of provisions, 523A, is a set of ex exceptions to discharge that applies only in the context of individual bankruptcies. More than 90% of individual bankruptcies are now consumer bankruptcies relating to consumer debts. Uh, and and, and, and what we know is that Congress in 1978 was substantially concerned about the problems of the ineffectiveness of the bankruptcy process vis-a-vis -vis consumer debtors, was concerned about overreaching creditors, was concerned about creditors who were aggressively asserting uh, positions using the non-discharge provision, specifically referred to by this court in, in Field v. Manns, uh, talking in terms of the, the financial statement provisions and the abuses by uh, by such creditors, a broad construction of these words. The, the, case, the case before the court involves certain facts. It represents a relatively tiny proportion of the bankruptcy, individual bankruptcy cases in this country to which it will apply. Mr. Ayer, uh, A4 says, uh, in effect, that a discharge, a discharge does not discharge a debtor from any debt for fraud while acting in a fiduciary capacity. 
there there is no language about money or property or to the extent obtained by. Correct, Your Honor. So under A-4, would punitives be recoverable? They, and they have been so held, Your Honor. And so forth. Correct. They have. And in the petition for certiorari filed on behalf of your client on page 9, footnote 4, it says, resort to legislative history is unnecessary given the plain language. And prior to 1984, a to bar discharge of a debt for obtaining money by fraud, which courts construed to bar discharge of both compensatory and punitive damages in fraud cases. And that's language from your petition. The, I took it to mean that was what the interpretation was before the amendment. Well, the, and the, the amendment just added to the extent. It, it is true. It is true that the Houtman case in the Ninth Circuit did so hold. Uh, and we discussed that in our brief. It did so hold in a case that did involve reckless fraud. It did not discuss the issue, however, in any detail. There is that case that held that. There are other cases that held punitives uh, to be non-dischargeable in a situation where the court said generally either 523A or we have A2, A4, And under A4, it would all be non-dischargeable, and the only difference in languages of the two is the two extent. No, it's, it's uh, the, the structure of, of, of A, A2 says debt for money, property services. It's debt for a thing versus debt for an act. A4, A6, A9, others of the provisions use the construction debt for willful and malicious injury, debt for fraud by a fiduciary. That construction, and I think it's quite reasonable, has been found to result in all of the damages for that act being found non-dischargeable. Uh, the construction that says debt for money or debt for property is a debt for the property. And that's our position. Eric, following up on just so counters thought, uh, is it not true? I, you looked at the issue much more carefully when you, before you filed your merits brief, of course, and are backing away from the footnote. But doesn't the footnote express what the treatise writers thought that the law was? I think that the prior version of Collier's took that position. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that that's true, but I also think it's true that there was virtually no authority on it. Um, may it please the Court, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Diebold, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, when considered in light of the history and structure of the Code, the clear purpose of the phrase to the extent obtained by fraud is to distinguish between um, legally obtained property or money and fraudulently obtained money or property. Um, in fact, the precise language that was used in the amendment was taken from a case in Ray Dan's Second Circuit case, which discussed that very issue, noted that there was a conflict in authority, and held that in a situation where a debtor obtains um, money through a legal credit transaction and then subsequently commits an act of fraud and then obtains additional money through a refinancing, the amount of money that gives rise to the debt is the amount obtained through fraud. But it's the debt which is non-dischargeable. And the debt has been defined and is still defined by the code as a liability on a claim. A liability on a claim is the amount that you become liable for as a result of the money that you obtain by fraud. It depends on, on, on how you use the word claim. I mean, you, 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 you can... You can say you have a claim for money that someone owes you, using the word, the object of the claim is what you're entitled to. But you can also say uh, you have a claim for fraud or a claim for personal injury. 
And, and in that case, you're using it to refer to the cause of action rather than what you're entitled to. And the point made by your, your, uh, your colleague here is that uh, uh, this, this statute uses the word in different sections in different ways. In four and in six and in nine, it's a claim for death for personal injury, a claim for willful injury, and so forth. Whereas in this, it, it says a claim for money. It, that's quite different. And, and then it says for money to the extent that. Well, it's, what, what's your response to that? My response, Justice Scalia, is that it's a, what's non-dischargeable is the debt. The debt is based on a claim for money to the extent that the money was obtained by fraud. Yes, but it's very difficult to say that the punitive damages were obtained by fraud. <laughs> it's difficult to say that if you concede, which we don't, that obtained is used to limit the amount of debt that you occur, incur. But what, you're, what we say um, obtained is limiting is to explain that the fraud that there must be fraud in connection with the money you obtained, and that gives rise to the non-dischargeable debt, which in this case, uh, under New Jersey law, is three times the amount of the overcharged rents. If I can... I just want to go back to that one case you said. I mean, the odd, I think the language that gives me the most trouble from your point of view is, is the words, to the extent. Why did they put that in if they, if they meant claim, you know, a liability on a claim, a claim for fraud, you just say... The thing that's, that's non-dischargeable is liability on a claim for fraud. That's the end of it. Why, why did they put this word to the extent? I think they used to the extent um, as a way of showing that the debt was limited to the extent um, that you obtain money through fraud but what is non-dischargeable is that debt which arises from the other. Well, where is there such a thing as a claim? And the claim... Well, the def- Was that the case that you just mentioned that? You have a claim for money or a claim for property. And the claim is for money. And part of the claim is for money. Some of the money is obtained by fraud and some of it is not obtained by fraud. I mean, is there such an animal as that? I think that happens all the time. In the well, how does work. that work? Let me, let me use an example um, in the credit transaction. Very often happens that in a um, credit card situation, you charge things, you incur bills, and then you decide you're going to file for bankruptcy. And a month before you go to the attorney and file for bankruptcy, you run up $10,000 worth of debt. Courts have held that that money is obtained by fraud. So to the extent that your credit card bill was obtained by fraud, that debt is non-dischargeable. But if the state of New Jersey, as it has in this case, chooses to impose a penalty for that. But you don't usually think of one obtaining a bill. I mean, you obtain property for which you get a bill. Obtain sounds like you've succeeded in doing something. That's correct. You don't obtain... Um, you obtain money, yes. but you incur a debt for, for obtaining that money, which is non-dischargeable. The debt here happened to be more than the money you actually obtained, three times more. Well, let That's me the- ask you another question, uh, referring to this general section of A, uh, subsection A. Subsection A7 says that it's not dischargeable to the extent such debt is for a penalty payable to 
a governmental unit and is not compensation for actual pecuniary loss other than a tax penalty. There, the Congress has specified certain penalties that will be non-dischargeable, those payable to the government. Does that mean that they thought about penalties such as punitive damages that aren't payable to the government and didn't include them anywhere? No, Justice, I don't think no? it, it does. I think that, first of all, with A7, the, the difference between A7 and A2 is that there mm-hmm. has to be a debt owed to or penalty owed to the government. But there's nothing in the code itself which restricts um, or makes each of those sections exclusive. A well, at least we know from A7 that Congress thought about penalties. Exactly, and we also know... To the extent know, they're payable to the government. Sometimes punitive damages are payable to a governmental unit. Maybe if in that case it would go under 7. That's correct. There's no requirement of fraud in A7, so that the government can recover those penalties regardless of what the reason for their imposition was. In A2, of course, there's a requirement that the private parties show fraud. But A7 also demonstrates that Congress knew clearly how to distinguish between um, compensatory damages and punitive damages if they wanted to. Is this, can I, can I just, are you finished? Because I want to get my, are you finished with that yes. response? Or the, the, uh, I want to be sure I understand this. The credit card company says Smith went bankrupt and Smith owes me $50,000. Right, so my claim as the credit card company is I have a, a claim, liab- I say Smith is liable on my claim for 50000 Now, 20000 of that he obtained by fraud. So I have a claim for 50, and that claim for 50 is, fraud, is for fraud to the extent of 20,000. That's correct. And your position, your view is that, that that claim is a claim for fraud to the extent of 20,000, and any liability on that claim for 20,000 is liability on a claim to the extent obtained by fraud. So if liability on that portion of the claim, 20000 is in fact 100000 because of punitives, etc., the whole thing's non-dischargeable. The 100000 is non-dischargeable. And the case that said all that is? In Ray Dan's made the distinction between those. Now, in addition to that, we have the... Um, well, I'm not sure how, how Dan's help, help, helps you, because in, in Dan's, uh, it was just the first part of Justice Breyer's hypothetical, as, as I recall the case, the 20000 and the 30000 and they said that the 20000 which was obtained by fraud, that is non-dischargeable, not the thirty. Or, or am I misreading the case? No, Your, your Honor is misreading, is not misreading the case. But the dance did not involve the imposition of a trebling uh, punitive factor. But the, what dance did hold is that the statute permitted the discharge of that portion of the debt which was not obtained. So that the debt is severable for purpose of applying the dischargeability provisions, which is what the petitioner is saying. Or am I misstating? I I respectfully think that um, Your Honor is. um, We both agree that the statute, I believe we both agree, that the statute permits a severing of that obtained legally and that obtained by fraud. The question is, does the statute, in addition, prohibit um, the imposition of treble damages or other penalties or punitive damages based on the amount obtained by fraud, which in your honest hypothetical would be the the $20,000? Am I correct that in your answer to Justice Breyer's question, you were assuming that debt or claim and money are synonymous? 
but it seems to me that under the statute they're not synonymous. There are certain debts or claims, and those, those debts or claims may to some extent represent money obtained. So that if you, if you recognize the distinction between claim on the one hand and the money that may or may not be represented by that claim on the other hand, you would have to answer differently, wouldn't you? Well, I'm not sure I'm following. You would, have to, you would have to say that if you recognize the distinction, you simply cannot amalgamate money obtained by fraud and damages assessed with respect to that money obtained by fraud. And that, it seems to me, is what you consistently do in your argument. You do identify or amalgamate those two things, and yet the statute seems not to do that. Well, except that the statute defines debt as a liability on a claim. Mm-hmm. And... In this case, the liability on the respondent's claim was, under New Jersey law, three times the amount of the money obtained by fraud. Which means that part of the claim represents money obtained and part of the claim represents something else. Well, if I can use an example to, I think, answer what what I believe to be Your Honor's question. Let's assume that in this case the legal rent was $500. And the landlord had a good faith, reasonable belief that the rent was $600. But he decided to tack on another hundred dollars because he thought he could get away with it. What we're saying is that the amount between five and six hundred dollars would be fully dischargeable. The amount between six and seven hundred dollars um, is the amount that he obtained by fraud, but that but the debt that that obtaining would create would be three hundred dollars under New Jersey law. But the statute does not in terms speak in subsection two A of debts. It speaks of money. It speaks and the money is less, in your example, than the debt. The statute, though, as a whole, deals with the non-dischargeability yeah, of Yeah, but debt. when you start talking about statutes as a whole, the, the, that means this particular language is against me, but I'm going to try to find a broader purpose. Uh, do, you, do you concede that as long as you make the distinction between the debt or claim and the money, on the other hand, recognizing that the latter may be less than the former, the language of the statute is against you. No, I don't concede that. Let me me try it another way. I think I'm asking the same question. It seems to me perfectly uh, reasonable to add on the the trebling in those sections that speak of any debt for fraud, for willful and malicious injury, when they talk about a debt for the wrongful act. Anything that you get by reason of the wrongful act, including the trebling, belongs to you. But when they're using claim in the other way, or debt in the other way, that is a a liability for a claim, and they're saying debt for money, money isn't a wrongful act. And when it says debt for money to the extent that, there it seems to me not proper to add on any trebling that you get. Now, what's the response for that? And you have to understand that two and maybe seven are different from the other sections in that they refer to debt for what you're asking for, not for the wrongful act. I don't think it's possible to define debt in different ways, depending on the subsection that you're using. Um, I'm not defining debt in, in different ways. I'm just noting that the object of the debt is phrased differently in these different subsections. In some cases, the object is the wrongful act. In other cases, it is what you are asking for by reason of the wrongful act. I, I think as a matter of grammar, 
that's a possible interpretation. But to, to reach that conclusion, Your Honor would have to assume that in 1984, Congress intended to change what was, I believe concededly, the, at least the majority position that punitive damages under A2 were not dischargeable. Yeah, but wasn't the prior law in exactly the form that Justice Scalia used as his contrast? Wasn't the operative phrase in the prior law debt for obtaining as opposed to debt for money obtained by? Isn't that, that correct? That's correct. But I think that the danger of looking at just the phrase that, that we're concerned about in this case is that it disregards the complete absence of any legislative history to support the position that the petitioner wishes you to adopt. I don't think that it's reasonable to assume that Congress would have decided to reduce the liability of a debtor for fraudulent conduct without at least some discussion or reference to it in the legislative history. Did the pre-1984 language deal in terms with punitive damages? It didn't deal in terms of punitive so damages it, it, specifically. And this one doesn't either, does it? No. Um, are, you, are you saying um, that uh, the petitioner, Mr. Ayer, is interpreting debt differently in two and in six? Yes. Um, because in two, you look at it from the standpoint of what the debtor owns, and in four and six, you look at it from the standpoint of what the creditor is owed? That's correct. That would be my position. And I oh, think... But doesn't, doesn't, but doesn't his argument use debt in exactly the same way? Debt is, is used synonymously with claim, but his argument simply depends upon the fact that the statute recognizes that some debt is for money obtained, and other debt is for judgments rendered. That, that, that is to say, and this is the same question, that debt means claim as further defined section, subsection by subsection by subsection. I don't think that the language, the operative language in Section 2, is attempting to further define debt, though. I think that even the petitioner concedes um, that the holding in um, the Levy case, which, which held that the phrase modified debt, is correct. Um, I think that what, what Congress was intending to do, as is shown by the 1978 legislative report that's quoted at page 19 of the Solicitor General's brief, is to distinguish between how that debt was obtained. The, the entire structure of, the, of 523 is to define or list certain types of conduct for which debts will not be dischargeable. The um, conduct that, is non, that gives rise to a non-dischargeable debt under A2 is that conduct which is fraudulent. If you obtain money in legally and fraudulently, then the statute allows you to separate those two um, situations, and only the debt based on the fraudulently obtained money will be non-dischargeable. And, and that's what In Ray Dance was about. Yes. And so you're saying, if you want to know why Congress used the language it did, read In Ray Dance. And that, at that point, you'll see what the drafter had in front of him or whoever drafted it, and that's why they chose that language. That's right. And the, and the very language, mm -hmm. to the extent by, is in the in Ray Dan's opinion. Our, our position, if I may sum up, is that there is, there is really no question, if this case were brought 20 years ago, that, that the punitive damages would not be discharged. Congress in 1984, throughout the little... But they dispute that. I mean, you say there's no question, but he thinks there's a question. Well, even this Court's opinions um, have talked about liabilities for fraud. 
There was no opinion of this court. There was no opinion directly deciding this issue prior to um, 1984 under the old language of the code. But there, are, there were opinions of this court that used the term liabilities for fraud. Judge Greenberg said this statute says money obtained by fraud. It doesn't say monetary relief imposed because of fraud. Well, that's correct. And perhaps Congress could have written this a little better. Um, but the fact is, I believe, that Congress would not have changed this statute and how it operates significantly in the way that the petitioner wishes you to read it without some discussion of it. The discussion, what little there was, about consumer debt and bankruptcy showed that Congress was concerned about curtailing debtor abuse. You would have to conclude, in order to rule in favor of the petitioner, that what Congress did in 1984 was to stop and say, okay, but let's give a break to fraudulent debtors and reduce their liability. And I don't think that under the the legislative history of, of this statute, that well, that's there, what there Congress to do. May I just ask this one question? We've talked about a hypothetical in which the debt would be just as far as 50000 to 20000 that was obtained by fraud, and that you're only talking about the consequence of that 20000 Are there any real-life cases out there that you can cite that present a situation similar to that hypothetical? This one doesn't. Well, I can't cite actually reported cases, but I think it occurs all of the time that credit card companies seek the non-dischargeability of debts which are run up, say, at the last minute prior to filing. Well, I understand, but they would not have added on to them any penalty, as you do here. That's the problem. Well, they may. Under New Jersey law, they would if the court... Theoretically, but I'm just concerned about the absence of any litigated case that presents the hypothetical that you rely on. I'm not aware of any. Thank Thank you, Mr. Diebold. Mr. Lampkin, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. For nearly a century, bankruptcy law has excluded from discharge all liabilities arising from the debtor's fraud, including consequential and, where imposed, punitive damages. Nothing in Section 523A2 alters that settled practice. The Code defines the term debt as liability on a claim. Section 523A2 thus exempts from discharge liability on a claim for money or services to the extent the money or services were obtained by fraud. Well, well you don't define punitive damages as consequential damages, do you? Uh, no, I would not define punitive damages as consequential damages. Uh, and that's, that's the colloquy we had with uh, Mr. Ayer, and I think he conceded that maybe some consequential damages are uh, within, within A2, even under his interpretation. We're talking about consequential and punitive are quite different. Uh, no, Your Honor, I don't think Mr. Ayer would concede that consequential damages to the creditor are within his interpretation. His interpretation limits uh, what is non-dischargeable to the amount actually obtained by the debtor. Now, if the debtor also makes an additional profit, he was considering the possibility of including that. But consequential damages are clearly excluded. Well, I think of consequential damages in connection with contracts and Hadley against Baxendale, not, not torts. What do you mean by consequential damages? Our consequential damages do follow from torts. I think the example on page 21 of our brief, for example, where the uh, defective bolts are sold to an airline with representation of their aircraft quality, the consequential damages would be the cost of actually replacing those bolts. That would not represent money obtained by the debtor, but it would represent consequential damages and therefore a proper recovery. Well, what's the difference between consequential damages and actual damages in your view? 
Um, in this case, or consequential damages I've used rather loosely, I should apologize, those are actual damages, but they are not restitutionary damages. They are damages that are incurred by the, the creditor but do not represent a gain to the debtor. But don't you see a difference between um, what you can get for uh, a claim for fraud and what you can get on a claim for money obtained by fraud? Uh, Your Honor, I think the question assumes that the phrase a claim for money obtained by fraud means a claim to acquire or to obtain the money which was obtained by fraud. I think it's clear that Congress did not use the phrase debt for or claim for in that sense. From Section A2A itself, that refers to a claim for services obtained by fraud. It's clear that the creditor is not trying to acquire the services that were obtained by fraud. What the creditor wants is the liability that was imposed as a result, and that liability can include punitive and consequential damage. That part, though, I don't think was conceded, was it, by Mr. Ayers? I don't know that they concede that even, say we go back to dance and we say this is all the same uh, for the history of bankruptcy law. They've always meant the same thing. But what is that same thing? And at that point, I think they have not conceded that even if you go back to 1890, that there would be liability for the punitives. Um, I don't think if you go back to 1898, it could be disputed. The 1898 Act, um, accepted from discharge, judgments in actions for fraud. I don't think that the phrase judgments in But has it been clearly held that if you go back, let's say, to the 1898 Act with the 1978 Code, etc., that it does include punitives? I, I'm not, have they conceded that? I'm not certain. No, I think uh, there's a concession in the petition, but I think the concession has been retracted. However, the cases... First, the language itself, judgments and actions, is unmistakably clear. A judgment includes the consequential damages and the punitive damages. And this case, the court's case in Brown v. Folsom, explains that when the change was made to lie from judgments and actions to liabilities for obtaining... You might say liabilities for means liabilities to this person, and a punitive damage award, after all, is not in respect to a liability to this person, and it represents a liability to the whole community for bad action, deterrent, you know, that kind of argument. I'm, not, I'm trying right. to generate a little more counter-argument on your part. Uh, I don't think that that, mm-hmm. that uh, construction of the word liability could be used, because the term debt, which is defined as liability on claim, has been held by this Court to include punitive damages where payable to private parties. Um, if well, t- the language of A2 really does favor the petitioner. A discharge doesn't include a debt for, in this case, money to the extent obtained by fraud. Favors the position taken by the petitioner. And you ask us to look back at the older provisions for guidance, I guess. That's correct, Your Honor. But I would disagree that the language favors petitioner because that is only true if you don't look at the definition of the word debt. The word debt is liability on a claim. I don't think it could be any clearer that a claim for money or property or services obtained by fraud under New Jersey law is three times the damages so imposed. And therefore, the the liability on the claim is the full amount of the judgment that would be entered by a New Jersey court in this context. The structure of 523A, I believe, confirms this. Section 523A6 and A9 make non-dischargeable liability on a claim for death or injury or liability on a claim for willful or malicious injury. One of the arguments made by uh, the respondent, and we didn't have time, I didn't have time to question him about it further, uh, was that uh, at the last minute before going bankrupt, people run up a lot of, a lot of bills. But uh, that's covered by a separate section, uh, is, is, is it not? Or would, 
subsection C not permit uh, the non-dischargeability under Mr. Ayer's theory for the yeah, I think the run-up, the run-up of credit card bills at the last minute has been specifically addressed. What has not been addressed, Your Honor, however, is the transact- repeated credit transactions in which some portion of credit is obtained by fraud and some portion is not. Before 1970, there was a split in the courts on whether or not the full amount of credit was non-dischargeable simply because a small portion thereof had been obtained by fraud. And that's the In Ray Dan's decision. The legislative history in 1978 shows that Congress was aware of this issue. I believe that the language added in 1984 is most reasonably read as making it unmistakably clear that there must be a parsing process to determine how much was obtained by fraud, how much was not obtained by fraud. And all of the liability on a claim for the portion that was obtained by fraud is non-dischargeable. And that liability may include consequential and punitive damages. You're saying in a a, a, a short phrase, I guess, that Debt for money means exactly the same thing that the old statute meant when it said debt for fraud, except that it defines the money with respect to the fraudulent means of obtaining it by a later phrase. Is that, in one sentence, is that your argument? That is absolutely correct. Lawyers often refer to a claim by what caused the claim to arise and sometimes by the result. We might speak of a claim for personal injury, the result, or we might speak of a claim for battery, what caused the injury. In the context of this statute, Congress has used those two interchangeably, as lawyers often do. Sometimes they spoke of a debt for fraud, the action that produced the injury, or a debt for willful and malicious injury, the result. In our portion, in A2, it says a debt for money, property, or services to the extent obtained by fraud, the result. But that does not alter the amount of liability necessarily. The amount of liability is that amount which would be imposed by a state court. And that amount, in this case, is three times the injury so imposed. If there are no further questions, I'll see the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Lamkin. Uh, Mr. Ayer, you have two minutes remaining. I'm sure Mr. Lamkin didn't mean to cede it to you. <laughs> thank, thank you, Your Honor. I, I would just want to make one point, and it relates to Justice Breyer's hypothetical about the credit card situation. I would submit that a broad reading of this provision here, so as to essentially use the prior language read broadly, as it's read in A6, reading uh, debt for obtaining money by fraud, creates that broad reading uh, to include all essentially consequential, punitive, and other damages would create a situation where a credit card company uh, who could come in and argue reckless fraud with regard to the, the, the $20,000 that was spent and then can argue 30000 more in interest at 18% under their contract and then can argue another 10000 in attorney's fees, uh, that in that circumstance uh, they can come in and, and make a credible, if not a, a winning argument, that, uh, that in fact all of that uh, is something that's entitled to non-discharge. Now, um, that is something that's a real-life issue. Uh, I would direct the court, if it's interested, to uh, the 1997 National Bankruptcy Review Commission report. You don't want them to get the interest. You mean all they all they can get is the is the twenty thousand dollars that the person got, and and he gets it interest-free, right? We we would submit, Your Honor, that's correct. That, that they they get the well, they they may get a market interest. Whether they get a contractual interest rate, I would submit is. Uh, why even the market interest rate? Well, I'm sorry. No, the, the measure under, under Justice Scalia's hypothetical earlier would be the benefit that, and I think it, it may be correct, the benefit that was obtained by the debtor, not the amount that's contractually owed uh, to the credit card company. Can I get you to comment on one question that came up in your opponent's argument? 
Uh, the prior law is uncertain, you, you say, but what about the 1898 statute? That was perfectly clear, wasn't it? Um, the 1898 statute talked about judgments. Right. Uh, it talked about judgments and... Which would necessarily include the punitive... Account. Well, if, if that language were transported to today when punitive damages is an issue, which really only started in a big way in the 1970s, that may well be where the court would, would come out. The fact is, no one has come up with a case construing that language. Well, of course, that language may be clear enough that you didn't need a case. Yes. But, uh, Thank you, Mr. Ayer. The case is submitted.